Welcome to Forthcoming Books. Okay, I'm Danielle, and today I'll be talking about Bull Mountain by Brian Panowich. It's coming out on July 14th, 2015. Basically, the book is about Clayton, who's the sheriff of Bull Mountain, um, and he actually comes from a long line of outlaws. His brother, his older brother, is the head of the family business, which is running moonshine, pot, and meth over state lines. And they get involved in all kinds of crazy things. There's a lot of uh, violence. There's a lot of really crazy, crazy things going on. Well, then one day, Agent Holly from the uh, ATF shows up in Clayton's office and says, hey, I know what's going on on this mountain, and I'm going to take it down. You can either get your brother on board and get him to stop doing what he's doing, or we're going to take your brother down and everyone with him. Do what's best for your family and and get your brother Halford on board. So Clayton starts working to get Halford on board, and it doesn't go as planned. We find out that Agent Holly has a hidden agenda, which I can't tell you about because then it would ruin the book. Um, but what I can tell you is that the story is basically told with a lot of jumping around in time. Even though these are the three main characters of the book, there's a lot of other ancillary characters. There's the father and the uncle from back in the 40s, and then there's there's other things that are going on with uh, back in the 70s. And so it jumps around quite a bit, which can be kind of disconcerting, especially since there isn't really a cheat sheet for all the characters in the book. And so it's kind of hard to keep them straight, frankly. But if you think of it from a movie perspective, it would make a really great movie because, you know, you can jump around quite a bit easier in a movie. From the violence perspective of the book, you know, it really reminded me of some of the mafia films that I've seen and some of the mafia books that I've read, where it's, you know, really kind of casual which is an interesting way to think about it. So you have a guy coming up and talking to Halford and Halford just beating the crap out of him. There's a story told in the book about bees, which is makes a lot, well, no sense at all. But then at the end, you end up with a guy being burned to death and it's just very casual. And it's, if you're not willing to read that kind of stuff, this isn't the book for you because there's a lot of it. But with that being said, the book itself is good. It's a, an interesting story, and it reads pretty well. What happened to the sheep? <laughs> so the sheep, okay, so they were killed by his the dog. dog. Okay, so he has two dogs, right? Book to screen. I'm Danielle. I'm Natalie. So this is a book to screen where we talk about the books that we have in the library that are just coming out on screen, whether it's movie or TV or something else. So today mm-hmm. we're talking about Far From the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy, and it just came out on screen. It was just in the movie theaters. What do you think? Uh, well, actually, I was a bit wary about reading the book because my previous Thomas Hardy experience is Jude the Obscure, which is possibly the most depressing book of all time. But I looked, I Googled a little bit first and found that this one was supposed to be a little bit more fun, which I did actually quite enjoy the book. I think that his writing is beautiful and the sort of main heroine, Bathsheba, is very kind of sassy and interesting and has three different suitors throughout the book of quite different personalities and reactions for her. And actually, I was going to read a little bit from the book. This is sort of... My f- not my favorite of her suitors, because you know he's bad news as soon as you meet him. He's a soldier. And she has this little kind of encounter in the moonlight with him where 
he tries to flirt. He, I think her, her, part of her outfit gets caught up in his outfit. And instead of untangling her like he's supposed to, he tangles her further just to keep her closer for a bit longer. And so after he's left and she's feeling sort of flushed and responsive, here's the quote about that. There are occasions when girls like Bathsheba will put up with a great deal of unconventional behavior. When they want to be praised, which is often, when they want to be mastered, which is sometimes, and when they want no nonsense, which is seldom. And moreover, by chance or by devilry, the ministrant was anecdotally made interesting by being a handsome stranger who had evidently seen better days. So that's sort of a, our sexy soldier. And then, sadly, the kind of description of her, the suitor she was just about to say yes to for his proposal was, it was a fatal omission of Boldwood's that he had never once told her she was beautiful. But I sort of like how Hardy is very honest about people's motivations and how she spends a lot of this book trying not to get married because men are always proposing to her and she's always trying to get out of it. And she has her own money at one point, so it doesn't... Yeah, there's no reason for her to get married. And it's interesting in the movie, she talks about... She has her little intro in the movie where she says, you know, I've always been the person basically to go my own way. And mm -hmm. why should I go any other way? That's why she's so fascinating, I think, because yeah. she is sort of like that for so long in the book. And she's like, but I don't love you. I don't want to marry you. And the yeah. guys are like, well, I love you. <laughs> yeah. And they're all like, I love you. And I thought it was interesting in, in the book. It's kind of different because um, I just blanked out on his name. Gabriel Oak. Gabriel, yeah. Gabriel so, Oak. So he goes and he's the first he to sees fall. her and he just mm -hmm. immediately falls in love and he goes after her and he says, I love you. And I'm like, but you don't know her. Mm -hmm. In the movie, it's a little different. They kind of show a little bit of a courtship going on. They kind of mm -hmm. talk about like you see them kind of getting to know each other from afar, which made a heck of a lot more sense to mm -hmm. me than the book where, oh, I love you. Marry me. And no. she's like, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't marry you either. I don't know you. Um and then the others, you know, you kind of see more of the courtship of each of the suitors. Yeah, so then she also has Boldwood, who is someone who's in his 40s, so at that time was older to have never shown an interest in marriage before, which he never had. And she is trying to tease him because he's sort of the one gentleman around or the one, you know, man of any kind who hasn't, who kind of ignores her. Yeah. So which kind of, you know, gets her goat a little bit and makes her feel provocative. So she kind of sends him a teasing sort of valentine with marry me on it and for this guy once he finds out it was her kind of he has an awakening of sorts and he falls in love and is determined to marry her and she kind of put this all into action by accident yeah <laughs> and then there's the soldier who is um terrible bad news immediately he's terrible. he's the best he's the most confident flirt of all of these guys yeah definitely but you immediately know he's bad news yeah now the movie didn't follow the book exactly because that's the way movies do um uh, I liked the adaptation, though. I had a hard time getting into the book because I had a hard time with the characters. Mm -hmm. um, I really liked the descriptions of the, the scenery and and what was going on. and But the characters, the main characters, just kind of felt really one-dimensional. And that might just be because it's an older book, mm -hmm. and that's kind of how they are. Um, the movie adaptation I thought was really good. Uh, I liked how they brought different things, and they kind of made them not in the same order necessarily. But it made yeah, it flow a little better. Well, it seemed. I, mean, I, have, I haven't seen the movie yet, but it seemed like the from the book, Bathsheba, she's you know, the center of everybody's attention, but she's not the heroine in the way, say, of, you know, that Lizzie Bennet is of 
you know, of a Jane Austen book. Because we start actually with Gabriel Oak and we follow him for quite a long time before we kind of even get to her and her internal life. So it is sort of she's not – it takes a little bit more time to get into her head, I think, in the book. How are the suitors in the film? <laughs> so, okay, Gabriel is kind of cute. I like him, you know, just from a perspective. The soldier, he looks slimy um, <laughs> from the beginning. He's just got that slick look, you know, that you kind of – you know he's going to be the bad guy. And then – um and then Mr. Boldwood really does kind of start looking at the end like he's starting to go crazy, which is really interesting because mm-hmm. um, he started out looking pretty good. And then he starts getting kind of frantic at the end and he goes a little crazy. I think that is some way of movies as a visual medium can cheat if you know the most handsome guy is the one we should be rooting <laughs> for the heroine to end up with at the end. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Do you think it was good to read the book before you saw the movie? I think if you read the book, don't be super attached to it when you watch the mm-hmm. movie. Um, and, and that's my word of advice on it because the, the movie is just enough different that you'll start kind of going, well, you know, she didn't do that in the book. And, mm-hmm. you know, someone else did that. And where's the horse? And yeah, you start doing that kind of nitpicky <laughs> thing that you do with a book to a movie. But right now you can get the book from the library and couple of months whenever it's on dvd you can get yeah <laughs> the film if you don't want to ca- put the cash out rochester liar liar whole self on fire <laughs> killing the classics this is natalie i'm going to be defending my homegirl jane I'm and sorry. her weirdo, her weirdo um, husband. This is Chris, and I must kill Jane Eyre. Hey, why don't you start? Kill it. Kill it. Well, I, you know, okay, so I should uh, preface this by saying that I'm not a big fan of melodrama generally, um, but, you know, I found this book extremely melodramatic, full of sad, full of self-pity. Um, you know, Jane, switching gears a little bit, Jane is often described as plain, you know, uh, which makes me feel... You know, what Charlotte Bronte meant was not attractive. And sometimes I don't feel like Charlotte Bronte liked Jane. Um, and Rochester is horrible. OK, he totally hides the fact that he's married to a crazy woman who lives in the attic. OK, and he's been blaming, blaming Grace Poole for the strange incidents in the house when all along it was his deranged wife. He's been hiding from Jane. Jane's life is in danger, which apparently is no concern of him. I can tell you um, a little bit my Jane Eyre reading history. The first time I read it was probably when I was a tween. You know, it's kind of the classic you read once you've graduated from Little Women and those ones. And I definitely, yeah, at that time, you're into melodrama. So I was very mm-hmm. into the drama of the story and it's very highs and lows, you know. But I do remember thinking that Jane was a bit of a, a bit of a freak, a bit of a prude, you know, because. So, yes, she finds out her fiancé has a wife. She should leave him. And spoilers. Okay, spoilers everywhere. Yeah. So she leaves him, but she takes no money. She's wandering the moors alone, starving. So, you know, tween me was like, you know. Melodrama. Take some money, you know. <laughs> don't die. Just right. this, you, know? <laughs> you don't have to die for love. It is a little bit dramatic. And then I read it again in college. And, again, like. Jane and Rochester in their own ways are both freaks mm-hmm. and very kind of sadomasochistic. Mm-hmm. And then I read it one more time for this, you know, saving the classics. And um, and what I noticed this time around is Jane, she's not like Lizzie Bennet where we love Lizzie Bennet and we want to spend time with her or want to be her. Jane, she is kind of hard to like because she's so kind of puritanical yes. and very rigid. But this time around, I was almost sort of impressed by that in her. 
And even, you know, when they're first... And Rochester is so weird because he, yeah, yes. he plays all these games. He pretends to be a gypsy to find out if she loves him. He's, it's really kind of hilariously crazy. I mean, I but know, yeah, I mean, Jane wants to be independent. She has really strong morals, as you were mm-hmm. saying. But then she falls for someone like him who <laughs> I, oh, my gosh. It definitely it does feel like a battle of the sexes. And there are points where he's like, he definitely wants her to be dependent on him. And she's not yes. having it ever. Like, even when they're happy, she is, you know, mean to him on purpose. So he's not as kind of cornyly romantic at her. And she won't take his money. And she's very... It's a very kind of interesting power dynamics there. And in the end, she wins because, yeah, he's but, – <laughs> what, what did you call him? Well, what does she win? I mean, what, so, you know, first he was going to commit bigamy with the snob, Blanche Ingram, right? Then after Jane gives a passionate speech declaring her love for Rochester, he throws over Blanche and decides to marry Jane. But he can't marry anybody because he's married. <laughs> well, I don't think he was ever planning to marry Blanche. I think that was all an elaborate, mm. like, scheme. Because you know, from the very beginning, he falls in love with Jane because she's... Well, I think because she's someone who has no one who's looking out for her. I mean, if he couldn't, he couldn't marry a Blanche because her family would be like, well, let's look into this guy. But he could marry a Jane because... But then your whole point about her being independent, she wants that, right? She wants that independence. And yet it's okay that if that's the case, that no one's looking out for her. She's looking out for herself. I think she still makes sort of poor choices. Well, I think yeah, I think you can question her choices, but in the end, you know, she the first time around she has nothing, but by the time she comes around Miss Rochester again, she has found a family. Yep. She has an inheritance. She could live independently her whole life if she wants to. She could probably get you know a cute gold digger of her own if she wanted that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she could choose someone who. One review I read thinks that you know um, both uh, Rochester and his wife have syphilis. <laughs> and that that's why his wife's crazy. And so so Jane, who now has inherited money um, and who has found a family, as you point out, instead she goes back and she wants to be with someone who's now disfigured from the fire, who possibly has syphilis, who's been lying to her all along. And uh, yeah, so she ends up tying herself to this disfigured liar pants syphilitic. <laughs> well, I do also – I love the stuff that's come out of this book. I love um, – like the whole feminist critique essay, The Mad yeah. Woman in the Attic. Yes. Yeah, and it also brought us the book Wide Sargasso Sea, which tells the story of the poor wife in the attic and gives her her own voice and her own character. And also kind of explores, you know, imperialism and colonialism in the Caribbean, which is really interesting. So I think a lot of kind of cool stuff has come out of it. And I am kind of a sucker for some of the miniseries. Oh, yeah. I'm uh, I'll, Sure, I'll sit and watch that stuff. <laughs> So, Jane, you have to decide if she's alive or dead. You can leave comments. Yes, please do. Tell us what you think. I'm right. Natalie's wrong. (laughs)